So this morning, um, well actually a few weeks ago, we sang the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, in our worship service. Um, And the words to that hymn were written by a man named Horatio Spafford, who in the 19th century was a lawyer in Chicago and a Presbyterian church elder. Um, He was a supporter and close friend of evangelist D.L. Moody, if you've ever heard that name. He was a preacher in the 1800s. In 1861, Horatio Spafford married his Norwegian-born wife, whose name was Anna. They had two daughters and a son and then two more daughters, so five children. In 1873, two years after losing their son to scarlet fever at the tender age of four, The Spaffords planned a vacation to England. Horatio was detained with business back in the States, but he sent Anna and his four girls ahead of him on a French steamship called the SS Ville du Havre. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the SS Ville du Havre was struck by another vessel and sank in 12 minutes, killing most of the ship's crew and passengers, including all four of the Spaffords' daughters. 11-year-old Annie, 9-year-old Maggie, 5-year-old Bessie, and 2-year-old Tanetta were all killed in that ship disaster. Anna, Horatio's wife, was rescued unconscious, floating on a wood plank. She was transported safely to Wales and telegraphed her husband from there to break the news that they were now childless. Horatio immediately left to bring her home, and it was on his voyage across the Atlantic to retrieve her, in the midst of intense grief, that Spafford wrote, It is well with my soul, which gives some context for the words, which I'll read. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. The gospel of Jesus Christ was a lifeline to Horatio Spafford, even in the midst of life's stormiest grief and sadness. I'm preaching to you this morning a passage from near the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, Let's go ahead and read it. So we're going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 1 through 8. I'm moving this so I can see your faces over there. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. That's the apostle Paul speaking. This is the word of the Lord. First, before Paul actually gets into summarizing the gospel itself, he talks about the importance of the gospel by way of introduction. If I had to put it in slightly different words, here's what the Apostle Paul is saying in writing. He's saying, now I'm about to remind you what the gospel is. It's the same gospel that I preached to you before when I was with you in person. It's the gospel which you received and which you stand in right now, the gospel that saves you. You did receive this gospel, right? You are continuing to stand in the gospel, aren't you? Now notice from the beginning, the first couple of uh, verses of this passage, how central and preeminent the gospel of Jesus Christ is to the life of a Christian. The Apostle Paul is writing to Christians, those who have believed here. He's writing to a church in Corinth. And yet, they need to be reminded of the gospel. He had previously preached the gospel to them, and yet it's necessary now for him to make it known to them again, is what he says. Why is this necessary for him to do when writing this letter? Well, if you've read the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that there were some pretty gnarly things going on in the Corinthian church. There were divisions within the church based on who their favorite preachers were. They even used godly things like listening to the word of God as a means of fighting with each other. They said, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of John Piper, or I am of Tim Keller, or I am of Joseph Bailey, or I prefer Paul Belcher, or I am of Alex McNeely. The Corinthian Christians were also engaged in civil lawsuits against one another without ever even seeking help from Christian brothers and sisters in resolving their disputes. This divided spirit made it even into their worship services. In their celebration of the Lord's Supper, for example, the rich would get drunk and fill their bellies while the poor would go hungry. One of the only things the church had unity on was in not disciplining a man in their midst who was living in open sexual sin. In other words, the Corinthians were not living in accordance with the gospel. They were not bearing the fruit that should come from those who know and love Jesus Christ. They were not bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So what does the Apostle Paul do in order to correct the situation? Well, he does a few important things. One, if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, one, he rebukes them. Two, he gives them practical instruction in godly living. And three, near the end of the letter, he reminds them of the gospel. This is something the apostles were having to do frequently. The apostle Peter, for instance, says that whoever lacks moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, or lacks perseverance, or lacks godliness, brotherly kindness, love, Whoever lacks those things has forgotten his purification from his former sins. And reminders of the gospel are not just necessary for churches, which are in a bad way. We see the centrality of the gospel in the letter to the Philippians that Paul writes, which we've been having preached to us here at Christ Church over the past few months. 
the letter to the Philippians has virtually no rebuke or correction in it, at least compared to Corinthians. And yet, the Apostle Paul uses the word gospel nine times in that letter, six of which appear in the first chapter as he introduces his letter of love to the Philippian church. He says to them, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. In verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Verse 27, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. As Christians, we never get to graduate from the gospel. The Apostle Paul uses two pictures to communicate this reality to the Corinthian Christians in our passage today in 1 Corinthians 15. He tells them that they stand in the gospel. In number two, he tells them that they are to hold fast to the gospel. You see that there in verse 1, in which you stand, and then verse 2, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. Let's talk about those two illustrations that the Apostle Paul uses for what it means to be in the gospel. One is to stand in the gospel. Not only did the Corinthians, past tense, you know, back when they first believe, receive the gospel, but Paul is telling them that they also, in the present, stand today in the gospel. As in, they were continuing to stand in the gospel. This standing in the gospel is an ongoing reality for the Christian. Imagine the gospel, the good news about Jesus, as a boat or a ship that carries you safely out on the ocean. As long as you are standing in the boat, you are safe. The wind and the waves and the storms may come, but God promises you in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you will make it safely from one shore to the other. The Ville du Havre the ship that Anna Spafford and her girls were on, could not guarantee the safe passage of Horatio Spafford's family from New York to England. After all, no man-made ship is 100% seaworthy. We've seen that proved in history over and over again. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is 100% seaworthy. It comes with a guarantee from the Lord of heaven, who is full of power and grace, that you will be kept safe until the day you die. If you put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, you are brought on board to His ship, and for the entirety of your voyage, you stand securely in the gospel. It is the only way to survive. If you do not believe the gospel, you are lost at sea. If you are a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, you might forget that you're on a ship. You might not always feel like you're safe, especially in the midst of a storm. You might get seasick. You might begin to behave as if you're lost at sea. And so you'll need to be reminded that it is in the gospel that you stand and that you are indeed safe in the gospel. The other image the apostle gives of our relationship to the gospel is that of holding fast. 
Can any kids tell me what it means to hold fast to something? Yeah, Liam. Hold on really tight. It doesn't mean to like move really fast to grab something. But it means that you hold on fast to the thing that you're grabbing onto. Did I almost knock over the... For effect. You hold fast to something, which means you hold on tight. Anna Spafford was rescued unconscious and floating on a plank of wood. Without that plank of wood, she was dead in the water. Without the preaching of the Word of God, you are dead in the water. It is your lifesaver, your salvation. It is the gospel by which you are saved, as Paul says. Unless you hold fast and put your trust in the message of the gospel, you will not be saved. Paul goes on. You can go ahead. Yes, to verse 3. For I delivered to you what I also received. This teaches us the nature of the gospel, that the gospel is a message that gets passed along. And it's a message that is from God. He is the source of the message of the gospel. And it is passed on from person to person, from generation to generation. The Apostle Paul didn't invent the gospel himself. It was delivered to him, and he delivered it to others. He delivered it to the Corinthians when he personally traveled there. And he made it known to them again when he wrote this letter to them. And he didn't change it up. He didn't change his tune. He delivered the same historical and spiritual truths each time he made known the gospel. And we have that same gospel that the Apostle Paul preached 2,000 years ago. We have the same gospel that the Apostles John and Peter preached. Now, normally with news... Many of you will know this. The message can get distorted when it gets passed from person to person, right? Have you kids seen this, that when you tell one person something and they go tell somebody else something and they tell this person who tells person C, who tells person D, sometimes when that message comes back to you, it's very different than when it left you. The further you are in time and distance... Sometimes, the less you can trust the validity of the news that you're receiving. But that is not the case with the gospel. Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of the gospel and maker of heaven and earth, has a vested interest in the good news of the gospel getting faithfully passed along without corruption. And we have Christ's assurance that our distance in time and location, even though it happened 2,000 years ago, on the other side of the world, literally, even though we're that far away, we have Christ's assurance that it is not a detriment to our accepting it. Meaning, it doesn't mean that just because it happened a long time ago and a long ways away that we can't believe it. We can. One place we see this in Scripture is in John chapter 17. Jesus is praying right before his death and asking his Father in heaven to sanctify his disciples, to set them apart, to unify them, to bring them together, to glorify them, and to be with them powerfully as they're about to go into the world with the message of Jesus. But Jesus goes beyond just praying for his 12 disciples. Did you know this? If you read closely, Jesus is praying for Peter and James and John and Andrew and Bartholomew, but... 
Jesus also prays for us. He prays for you in John 17. Listen to this. These are the words of Jesus. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. So Jesus is speaking to his Father in heaven. He's been praying for Peter and James and John in their company. But he says to his Father, I'm not just asking for Peter and James and John and Bartholomew and Andrew, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays for you in John 17. Those who believe through their word. If you have believed the testimony of the apostles, which is what we have here in the word of God, Jesus prayed for you. And Scripture actually tells us that He continues to pray for us in heaven before the throne of God. Jesus knows you personally. The world will say that believing a message that's 2,000 years old is foolish, but this message, the message of the gospel, has withstood the test of 2,000 years. It has faithfully been passed along from generation to generation. Jesus cares not just for Peter and James and John, but for all who have believed the gospel through the testimony of Peter and James and John and Paul. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. What is this thing that Paul delivered as of first importance to the Corinthians? Well, it's the simple, objective truths of the gospel. Now, without... Can you take that down from the screen for a second? All right. Kids, so if I said there are three parts of the gospel, if you had to sum up the gospel in three important things, what would you say? Anybody? What are the most important parts of the good news about Jesus? Okay, any guesses? Liam? What did you say? What was the last thing you said? Yeah, that's okay. So you said the death and resurrection. He's never sinned. That is very important about who he is. It says, so we have three things that the Apostle Paul tells us in this passage that were the most important things that he delivered to them. It's really complicated. It's not really complicated. Jesus died for our... Oh, yes. (laughs) He did preach to everyone. That's part of his life. Yeah. (laughs) We are to obey him. That is true. What Paul says here is the essence of the gospel is he died for our sins. He was buried. And he raised from the dead. When it comes down to it, the Apostle Paul reminding them of the most important things that he delivered, it is these basic historical truths about who Jesus was and what he did. Now, those other things you said are very important. His teaching, the fact that he was sinless, didn't sin, that was very good, Max. He couldn't have died for our sins if he himself had sinned. So that was a good answer. So... He he died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried. 
He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then Paul says a fourth thing, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And before I get to breaking down those parts of the gospel that Paul lays out, I want to say that the Apostle Paul's summary of the gospel surprises me. And why does it surprise me? Well, for two reasons. One, it's really simple. There's nothing sophisticated about this message. It's a simple delivery of simple historical truths. You don't have to have a big brain to tell people about the gospel. In fact, 1 Corinthians earlier in this same letter in chapter 1, Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You don't have to be a great debater or a great arguer to deliver the word of the cross. Think of it as telling someone to get on the boat so that they can be saved from the wind and the waves. It's really not more complicated than that. So one, this is very simple. And this is one place where God shows us that he uses the simple things to shame the wise and the strong. But two, it surprises me how objective this message of the gospel is. What do I mean by that? The heart of the gospel is the objective historical realities of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This should be a relief that our salvation is grounded on real things that Christ did and not on what we can do for God, nor on how we feel at any particular moment. Thank God. Thank God for the objective nature of the gospel, that we can put our faith in real things that Christ did. Now let's take a look at what the Apostle Paul lines out as the gospel. The first thing he says, very simply, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The gospel starts with, Christ died for our sins. For you personally, that means the gospel starts with, Christ died for your sins. So first, the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that to be true for yourself? Are you willing to let Christ bear the weight of your sins? Not just sins in general, but your sins. Your real objective sins that you have before God. Second, will you confess that? Will you open up with your story, with where you feel pain, and with where you've hurt and been hurt by others? Will you name the reality of sin, not just in some abstract way, but will you name its presence in your own life with particularity? Naming your sin, confessing your sin, is one of the most evangelistic things that you can do. What if you said to your neighbor, your coworker, your boss, I came to God as a liar, as an adulterer, as a fornicator, as a blasphemer. I came to him, to God, greedy, impure, vile, and he forgave the guilt of my sin. 
Third, will you believe this, Christ dying for sins, to be true for someone else? Will you believe that Christ really does love sinners? And that there's no sinner too dirty for the kindness and mercy of God? You have to believe it to be true for your neighbor before they will. And what I mean by that is that it takes our faith in believing that Jesus died for sins to actually tell someone that Jesus died for their sins as well. So that's the first reality that Paul draws us back to, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You must believe that for yourself, and you must have faith that his desire is to save other sinners as well. Second, he says that he was buried. And I think this is something that we often forget about, but that is included. We say this in the Creed every morning, right? Every Sunday morning, that Jesus was died, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scripture. So why is it important that Jesus was buried? What do you guys think? Any kids? Why is it important? Who cares that Jesus was buried? What do you think? No guesses? Well, I have a couple reasons or a couple thoughts. One is because it shows that Jesus really was dead. There was no doubt about it. So this the story of Jesus dying and being buried was not like one of my favorite stories of Eutychus falling out of a window when the Apostle Paul was preaching. You guys know that story? Paul's preaching really late into the night, and poor Eutychus is sitting up there in the window, falls asleep while the Apostle Paul is preaching, falls three stories down to the ground. And what happens next is this whirlwind of things. Paul immediately goes down, throws his arms around him, and says, Don't worry, he's alive. And then they go upstairs, and Paul keeps preaching. And you're like, wait a second, was, was, he, was Eutychus dead? Was he just really hurt? What just happened? That's not the case. This is not what happened with Jesus, that he died and was buried in the ground because he was dead. Now, I think Eutychus was actually dead, too. But the point is, his burial shows that he was really dead. Another reason that Jesus being buried in the ground is so important is because it shows that He shares with us even the most humbling and earthly and gross aspects of our humanity. There's a disturbing reality of being buried in the ground when someone dies and their body literally returns to dust. The gospel is not just some uplifting story that gives a temporary peace and comfort by making you feel good. It gives strength and peace and comfort even to your own grave because we know that Jesus went all the way to his grave for us. There is no aspect of life, even the most painful and traumatic aspects of life, with which Jesus does not understand and sympathize with you in because he himself endured our shame and our suffering so that we might overcome those things through him. Philippians 2, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming, do you know what it says, anybody? Jesus humbled himself by becoming what? Yeah. What? No, not a baby. That's true. That's not what Philippians 2 says. By becoming 
obedient to the point of death. Very good. Obedient to the point of death. Jesus went all the way to death. That's why it's important that he was buried. It shows us that he was really dead and he was really conquering death for us. The third thing that the Apostle Paul says is that he was raised on the... What? Close? The third day. That's right. Yeah. The first day of the week, that's probably what you were thinking. He was raised on the first day of the week. But the third day of, after his burial, right? He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus didn't stay in the ground. He didn't stay buried. He doesn't just wallow with us in our shameful suffering. He overcomes it. He conquered death. And he gives us hope and victory over death, which is what the rest of this chapter, if you continue reading in 1 Corinthians 15, it's what it goes on to talk about, is our hope of being raised from the dead. You kids know that we'll be raised from the dead someday because Jesus was. I didn't learn that, I feel like, until late in my life. Like, what? We come back from the dead too? Jesus' resurrection testifies more than anything else that he is who he says he is. God the Father vindicated Christ and his testimony and his message by raising him from the dead. This is how God said, listen to him. Everything he said is true. And it's through faith in Christ's resurrection, through standing in his resurrection, through holding fast, holding tight to his resurrection, that we are saved. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In several places in this passage, you see there's this repeated little phrase that comes both in verse 3 and in verse 4. What's that phrase? Yeah, what's the the part that's repeated in verse 3 and 4? The last part, yeah, according to the Scriptures, right? He died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus reprimanded or rebuked the Jews of his time because they failed to believe in him on the basis of the prophet Jonah's testimony. You guys know the story of Jonah and the big fish? The Jews, Jesus says that they should have read the story of Jonah and because of the story of Jonah, believed in him. But they wanted something else. They wanted Jesus to show some additional sign or miracle so that, you know, they could really believe in him. And really believe that he was who he said he was. But Jesus responded and said that the testimony of the prophets should have been enough for them. That the Old Testament should have pointed them to Jesus so that they would believe in him. And yet, God in his great kindness did actually give them a sign. That was fuller and greater and more authoritative than anything the prophets had said or done. He sent His own Son to die for our sins and raised Him from the dead three days later. 
If the message of the Old Testament Scriptures was enough for the people of Jesus' day to believe in Him, how much more the message of the New Testament Scriptures for us? The prophets just spoke in shadows and spoke about in, in vague and hard, sometimes hard to understand ways that the Messiah would come and would die and rise again. And then it actually happened. And we have in the testimony of the apostles, not shadowy prophecies, but Jesus died and he rose from the dead. And not only that, but I find this next part to be one of the most encouraging things to my faith. Then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. What an encouragement these verses are to me. My faith is weak, and it doesn't really take much suggestion from Satan for me to go, wait, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Of course he did. And that's what the apostles went around telling people. That's what Paul told the pagan Athenians, that God had furnished proof of his intent to judge the world through Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. We have received the evidence. We don't have to wait for more. God's given you enough. He's given you more than enough, actually. Jesus didn't have to show himself to more than 500 people at one time after he rose from the dead. But he did. Because he really desires that you and many others be saved. God is not stingy. He has confirmed and added to the testimony of the Old Testament prophets. He has made his way of salvation more clear, and he continues to make it clearer every day as the gospel continues to be preached day in and day out. And that's all I'm here to do, is to preach to you the gospel. Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which has been preached to you. I'm not just quoting 1 Corinthians, now I'm I'm speaking to you. (laughs) I make known to you the gospel which you received and in which you stand, the gospel that saves you. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ was buried. Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the Scriptures. After rising from the dead, he appeared to Peter, and then to all of his closest disciples. And then he appeared to over 500 of our fathers and mothers in the faith at one time. And then as if that wasn't enough, he appeared to his disciple James, and then to all the apostles again. And then he appeared to the apostle Paul. And we have the testimony of all of this happening. Now, all of these witnesses have died but we have their testimony preserved for us in the Scriptures. And Jesus hasn't stopped making His presence known. He lives among His people in the power of His Holy Spirit. He is with us now as we worship Him and gather in His name. So let us give glory to His name as we worship Him together. Would you please pray with me?